Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. In a few moments, we'll be reading verses 1 through 11, but our focus this morning will be verses 5 through 8 as we continue our study through the book of Philippians. Take your Bible and turn to Philippians chapter 2. My grandfather was a woodworker. That's not what he did for a living, but that was his hobby. He was one of those guys that when he saw something, he could just build it. He had all of the tools and all of the skills and loved to do that. I was able growing up to be around him quite a bit, and when he was home, he was often in his shop working with wood. Now, the result of that is that I inherited his desire for woodworking. Man, I love everything about it. I love the ability to make something, to create something. I love the smell. I love everything about it. I inherited his desire. So deep inside of my heart, I really love to do those kind of things. But in the strange providence of God, I did not inherit his talent for woodworking. I love doing it, but I'm honestly horrible at it. I've never made anything that's turned out really that great. And so I... Love to watch it. I love to be a part of it, but it's really not my thing. But yet, I still learned some lessons from him by watching him as he worked with wood. A lot of different things he would teach. And this is kind of the way that it worked. I would just watch, and as I would watch, he would talk, and I would watch what he did and hear what he had to say. And I learned a lot of kind of basic lessons about building things. One of the most basic lessons I learned, and this is really simple, but you have to learn it at some point in some way, is how to cut pieces of wood the same length. Well, there are many ways to do that. The way I learned is to take a tape measure and measure out one piece of wood exactly the size that you want it, and then take that piece of wood and write something on it to identify it, to write maybe the word pattern on it. And instead of measuring out every individual piece, use that one piece of wood that you measured at first and cut every single piece by that same pattern. Now that same idea is incredibly significant when we talk about what it means to be a part of a church. I want you to think about this. The church is the gathering together of, in this situation, over a thousand different people who all come to church with their own ideas, their own desires, their own interests, their own thoughts on the way in which church should be done and the songs that should be sung and the kind of preaching that should be done. And it's the gathering together of all kinds of different people. And that's based on a lot of different things. I mean, it's based on your experience or your background. A lot of the things that you've gone through in your life will cause you to desire certain things from a church or maybe just your preferences based upon the things that you grew up with. But the question is always this. How do we get this many people from all these different backgrounds with all these different preferences and all these different desires and all these different views to get along? And the goal is not to get along. The goal is for us to be unified and to actually be moving in the same direction. It's one thing to get along. It's another thing to be moving together. And that's the challenge of the church. You say, well, well how do you do it? I would say the simple answer is this. You give everyone the same pattern. The pattern is Jesus Christ. 
That's the reason why in everything we do at Prince Avenue Baptist Church, from every announcement that is made, to every song that is sung, to every sermon that is preached, to every small group that is taught, we are going to be from beginning to end about Jesus Christ. We will be holding up for everyone to see in every moment we have together the pattern of Christ. We will be demonstrating and showing and revealing through the word the life of Christ and the passions of Christ and the character of Christ. And the goal is this, that Christ might be the pattern so that we're dying to ourselves and our own preferences and our own desires. And what we're saying is, Lord, what we want more than we want anything else is what Christ wants. The church is not everyone gathering together for the pastor's preferences. It is the pastor himself and all of the pastors dying to self and saying, Lord, what is it that you want? Where would you have us go? What do you want us to accomplish? And then every single one of us conforming to the pattern of Jesus Christ. Now, that's exactly what Paul is doing in Philippians 2. He has the same challenge that every pastor has had in every church that has ever existed. Paul led a few people to Christ, a group of people who had nothing in common ethnically, socially, culturally, yet he brought them together in a little Bible study in Lydia's house, and they're not getting along. But Paul longs for them to get along because of what he says in chapter 1, verse 27, that they might stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's what Paul wants. The church unified, moving together for the sake of the gospel. But he knows it's complicated. And so after painting for them that picture in Chapter 1, verse 27, he then shows them the way in which it's going to happen. How do you get a church moving together in the same direction for the gospel? The answer is you point all of them to the pattern of Christ. That's exactly what he's saying in Philippians 2. Look at it with me as I read verses 1 through 11. Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Here it is. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? It says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. He is calling 
everyone to have the same mind. He says that in verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind. What mind is that? It is the mind of Christ. So be united in the same mind. And then in verses 5 through 8, what he's doing is this. He's just showing us what that mind looks like. It's one thing to say everyone have the same mind. It's another thing to say now everyone have the mind of Christ. It's a step further to say now here's exactly what that mind of Christ looks like. And that's exactly what he's going to do. He says, have this mind, look at verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Meaning, it is the mind which you have seen in Christ Jesus. The example you have. The mind that you have seen in Christ, you, you know about the life of Christ. You've been taught about the life of Christ. And so as you have seen it modeled for you, embrace that same mind. And the key phrase is when it says, he humbled himself. It says in verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself. This is the probably summary of the mind of Christ, this humble mind of Christ when he's regarding us as more important than himself when he was laying down his life for our sake. So this passage is calling us to a Christ-like mind, which is a mind of humility. Everyone in the church dying to self, putting others before ourselves, and embracing the humble mind of Christ. So last week, we looked at verses 1 through 4, and we said this. That the pathway to unity is selfless humility. That's a principle for your marriage, for your family, for the workplace, particularly for the church. If we want to be a humble church, I mean a, a united church, the pathway is every person selflessly being humble. But I want to take it a step further in verses 5 through 8 this morning. The point of verses 5 through 8 is this, is that Jesus Christ is our model and our means of humility. So if we want to be a unified church moving together, which I hope is what we want this morning, then selfless humility is the pathway. Now, how do we discover what that humility looks like? The answer is Jesus Christ is our model and our means of humility. So here's what I want to do this morning. I'm going to give you five words. I want to encourage you to write those down. Five words. Four of them are going to show Jesus as our model for humility, meaning that in those four words, it is something that we see in Jesus as a pattern and we are to emulate. So the first four words I'm going to give you are specific things we see about Christ that we should attempt to be like. The last one is something that we cannot be like, but it is Jesus as our means of humility. And please hold on until the end, because at the very end, I'm going to tell you how it's possible through Christ to actually live a selfless life. So five words is Jesus as our model and means of humility. The first word, write this down, is this, surrender. Surrender. It is the point of verse six. Surrender. Now, he tells us in verse five, have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. So, so what is that mind? Well, that's what he's about to say. Now, before Paul talks to us about the life of Jesus, he starts by talking to us about the eternal existence of Jesus. Before he says, here's who Jesus is, he starts by saying, here who Jesus has always been. He wants to reveal to us the nature of Jesus Christ. Now, this is going to be very important. This is not only a significant theological text, 
But Paul's point here is not really primarily theological. It bothers me when I hear someone preach this text and they only talk about the theological point of the divinity of Jesus. It's important, but the point of understanding his divinity is that we might understand in a practical way his humility. But he affirms the divinity of Jesus with two statements, both of them in verse 6. Look at there. If you're in Philippians 2, verse 6, say amen. 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 It says, he was in the form of God. Now, when we think of the word form, we think of some outward appearance, something taking on the form of something else. That is actually the opposite of what this word really means. The word here that is used for form is a word that means the very inner nature of something, to be of the same essence of something. So to say that Jesus eternally existed in the form of God means that from all eternity past, Jesus had the same essence as God. He was, by his very nature, God. He did not take on a form that he did not previously have. He was always existing with the very essence and the very nature of God himself, meaning He shares all the power and all the glory and all the honor and all the majesty of God because Jesus has always existed as God. He goes on to say, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now we'll talk about what it means to grasp that in just a minute, but he does affirm here that Jesus had equality with God. Now I'm going to be real deep and theological here for just a minute. I want you to hold on. What I want you to know is this. The only thing equal to God is God. That's complicated, I know. But it's impossible to be equal with God unless you are God. Nothing else is equal with God but God. So to say that Jesus was equal with God means that Jesus has to, in fact, be God. It cannot say that Jesus was equal with God without at the same time affirming Jesus' divinity. And what Paul is doing here is he's affirming for us what the entire New Testament affirms, contrary to what the Jehovah's Witness that knocks on your door will tell you, that Jesus is in fact God and has eternally existed before God. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. John 1 affirms that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It doesn't get any clearer than that. But if you need more evidence, go to Colossians chapter 1, where Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Go to Hebrews chapter 1, where Jesus is the exact imprint of God. And then go to Philippians chapter 2, where he is equal with God. Jesus is completely divine. So he's trying to affirm to us the divinity of God because he wants us to see that Jesus has the right to receive all wealth and all comfort and all praise and all worship and all submission. And yet all of those things he had a right to, it goes on to say this, he did not count equality of God a thing to be grasped. Meaning, he did not say that I refuse to let go of all that I deserve. He did not come to earth and say, listen, 
I'm God in the flesh, and I demand your worship and your allegiance and your kindness and your service. He didn't do that. He did not say that all of these things are things he had to, 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 to grab onto and to, to grasp, to hold tightly. I mean, the, the word picture I think of when I think of holding something like this so tightly, I, I think about our two-year-old son, Josiah, who we discovered, this might be surprising to some of you, who, at, a, at, a, at a fairly young age, about a year and a half, had uh, almost a superhuman ability. He had this special honing device that was implanted into his mind, and it was a honing device for magic markers. We have four daughters. We have a lot of crafts around our house, and a lot of magic markers are often left, lit, left sitting someplace, and our 18-month-year-old son would just have this incredible ability, no matter what, to know exactly where a marker was to go to it, find it, take the top off, and as quickly as possible to do as much damage as possible. This was his superpower, and he was very good at it. Now, every once in a while, we would catch him in the act. Not the act of drawing on something, but the act of finding a marker. And he would look at us, and we would look at him. We would look at him like, "Uh uh-uh, don't do that. He would look at us like, oh, I'm going to do it. I mean, if you want to get the marker, come get the marker, but you're going to have to pry it out of my flailing on the ground hands. We'd take a step toward him, and he would bolt, and he'd have that marker in his hand as high as he could, and he would be running with all of his might, trying at the same time to get the cap off and mark something before we get the marker. And I'm not kidding. The strength that he possessed in this moment is what made us know this was a superhuman ability to get him on the ground and pry that marker out of his fingers. And we would normally win not always, and to see the way in which he held on to that marker reminds me of the way that every single one of us hold on to the respect and honor we think we deserve. We think we deserve to be served, and we have rights, and people should treat us a certain way, and we hold on to this desire to be loved and appreciated and served and honored We have something inside of us that is always irritated when we don't get the respect we think we deserve, when we don't get the thanks we deserve, when people don't treat us the way that we deserved. And the irony of that is this, is that Jesus, who deserved it all, willingly let it go when we, who deserve none of it, have an incredibly difficult time of letting any of it go. The point of Philippians 2 is that Jesus who had the right to all of it, did not grasp it. We don't have the right to any of it, and yet we cannot let it go. And the model of Jesus is the model of a willingness to surrender all of the rights and all of the privileges and all of the need for thanks and appreciation. And look at Jesus and say, I will willingly let that go, not feeling inside that I deserve something I'm not getting, but simply surrendering those rights to Jesus Christ that I might live for others. Surrender. The second word is serving. It's in verse 7. So he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Instead of clutching on to his rights, what did he do? He did the opposite of that. He emptied himself. 
Now, the actual Greek word means that he poured himself out. He did not cease to become God. He just took all of who he was and poured it out into human flesh. It is the idea of of kind of pouring out a pitcher of water. When you pour out a pitcher of water onto the ground, it does not cease to be water. It's just been poured out. And so it is the divinity of Jesus was poured out into human flesh. Some of your versions might say something like this. He made himself of no repute. Or he made himself nothing. That's, That's a good translation. It's not the exact word picture, but it gets the idea of Jesus saying, I'm going to willingly make myself nothing, but instead take on the form of a servant. Now, do you see the word form there in verse 7? It's used three times. It's the same word used in verse 6 when it says he was in the form of God, meaning he had the very nature of God, the very essence of God. So here we're introduced to the the great mystery of the incarnation of Jesus becoming flesh because while in the flesh, he had the very essence and nature of God and he also had the very essence and nature of humanity. So he did not cease to be God to be human, but as God, he took on the very nature and essence of humanity. He is fully God and he is fully man. He has both divine and human nature. So because of his divine nature, he is able to be the sacrifice that we need him to be. Because of his human nature, he can die on our behalf, having lived the life that God the Father required, the life of perfect obedience. Now, what's amazing about this is not simply that Jesus became human. I mean, even if Jesus simply became human, it would have been an act of incredible humility. Follow with me here. For him to leave heaven and to take on the form of a human, he had to take on all the limitations of humanity. He willingly submitted himself to the limitations of humanity. He got hungry. He got tired. He got sick. And all of the different aspects of humanity, he willingly chose for himself. Now, I I think we would all agree, being a human is hard. I don't have anything to compare it to. I've been a human my entire life. But yet, I can say that being a human is hard. I mean, we do get sick and we do get tired and life is just difficult. And imagine Jesus saying, I'm willing to leave heaven and to be poured out into a human body in which now I'm embracing all the limitations of simply what it means to be human. But that's not the most amazing thing. He could have become human and still embraced all those limitations and been a human king or a human ruler or a human warrior. And it still would have been an incredible act of humility because even as a human king, he's submitting himself to the limitations of humanity. But what it says here is when he was deciding what form of human to take on, he took on the form of a servant. Look at it. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. The same word Paul uses in verse 1, a bond slave. He willingly chose to come to earth in humanity and become a slave. And willingly become a servant. Not simply taking on the limitations of manhood, but submitting himself into a position as a servant. That's why Mark 10.45 says that even the Son of Man 
did not come to be served, but to serve. And the significance of the word even is because it's trying to say, listen, even God chose to become a servant. So if even God is choosing, choosing to become a servant, how much more should we become a servant? We think, well, it's just, it's just so humbling to serve people. It's just so humbling to, 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 to surrender our rights and give ourselves to someone else. But even the Son of Man chose the position of a servant. It reminds us that in the same way this is a choice that Jesus made to become a servant, it is a choice every one of us make every single day to take upon ourselves the role of a servant every day to wake up and say to ourselves, I exist not only, listen, as a servant of God, but a servant of others. I mean, I think about Prince Care, Sky, and I'm thinking about this opportunity that we have to take a little bit of time and to serve other people. I was talking with a pastor friend of mine this week, and we were talking about how the way in which church works is that when we call the church to do something corporate together, it, it not only accomplishes something itself, but it accomplishes something different and deeper in that it does something in the individual life of the person. So we're calling you to serve together because that's powerful, but it also is a moment for you to learn to serve and to humble yourself, to go clean something, to go serve someone else. And this is why we're given this opportunity because God has called us not only to surrender, but to serve. The third word is suffering. Suffering. Write that down, that's verse eight. He not only became a servant and was born in the likeness of men, but he was found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So I want you to continue to see this descent from heaven to humanity to a servant to the point of death. He was not simply a servant, he was a suffering servant. He was obedient to the point of death. He suffered to the point that it cost him his life. Now, can I remind you, every one of these words are for us to emulate. This is not just talking about Jesus. This is talking about the life that we are to embrace if we call ourselves followers of Christ. And part of that is the willingness to serve to the point that it cost us something. Jesus served to the point of death. He was obedient to the Father to the very point of death. Now, the interesting thing about Jesus' death is that Jesus was not a martyr. John 10, Jesus says, I lay down my life and I'll pick it up again. No one takes it from me. He says that I came to give my life as a ransom. Jesus was not a martyr. He gave his life. And he gave his life as a ransom, meaning he was the price that had to be paid in order for us to be free from slavery to sin and to Satan. So Jesus gave his life as a ransom, experiencing death that we might be set free from sin and suffering. We were the prisoner. He paid the price. He took upon himself our suffering. And if you ever wanted a picture of Philippians 2 verse 4... It is the picture of Jesus on the cross where it says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others, serving to the point of suffering. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Our sin was laid upon him that Jesus willingly took upon the form of humanity, suffered for our sake. And it is a reminder to us, listen, Serving 
always costs something. It always costs something. An unwillingness to suffer will always be an unwillingness to serve. I think we have this idea that we want to be like Jesus as long as it doesn't cost us something. And the very nature of being like Jesus is picking up our cross and following him daily. And so the point is, it's not just serving, it's being willing to serve when it costs. Are we willing to suffer for the sake of others, to enter in to the things that they're going through, even when it costs us time and money? And have you discovered that oftentimes it's not the money that's that hard to give, it's the time? We would often rather give our money than we would our time, but are we willing to suffer to serve others? So there is the surrendering, there is the serving, there is the suffering. But the fourth and final word of our imitation is this, shame. Write that down, write down the word shame in verse 8. It says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And here is the last part here. Even death on a cross. Now the word even is significant is because the same way it's significant in Mark 10, 45. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. So it is here, Jesus not only died, even death on a cross. Like, like as if to say, you, you can't even believe it, that he not only was willing to become human and to become a servant and to suffer and die, but to die the worst possible death, that of crucifixion. And Jesus is the one who willingly gave his life to be crucified. It's not that he had no idea that that's the way he was going to die. He willingly gave himself to the type of death which was the worst possible pain you could imagine. It was a slow and gruesome and brutal death in which the run crucified died not from their wounds, but because they became so weak that they were unable to lift themselves up and take a breath, so after many, many hours, often days, they would suffocate to death. This is what was happening on the cross. But it was not only the worst in pain, it was the worst death in shame. You ever thought about the fact that Jesus didn't die isolated in a corner where no one could see? He was crucified between two hardened criminals publicly so that everyone who had ever seen him in his ministry could walk by and see the shame of being hung on a tree between two known criminals? You say, why was that necessary? It was necessary because he was not only taking upon himself our sin and our suffering. Listen, he was taking upon himself our shame. That's our sin that he died for. That's our suffering that he took. That's our shame that he was enduring. We're the ones that should be ashamed. We're all the hardened criminals. All of us deserve to be publicly executed for the things that we have done, but Jesus chose to be publicly shamed so that we did not have to live with that shame any longer. And the glory of the gospel is that it now allows us to be willing to take the role of a servant and embrace any shame that that might bring because we know who we are in Christ. And the real shame of our sin has already been paid for on the cross. It is a reminder that there is no glory in suffering. There is no glory in serving. If we long for glory, we're going to want to be served. But if we long for God's glory, 
will be willing to be served. I mean, we're willing to serve. The truth is, it's our desire for glory, our desire for self-protection that causes us to keep thinking we need to be served. But when we get to the place where we long for Christ to be exalted, then we know that Christ will be exalted in us, humbling ourselves and taking the, poor, the place of a suffering servant, willing to be shamed for the sake of others. Now look at verse 5, and we'll be done in just a moment. <laughs> so you take all of that in mind, the suffering, the serving, the shame, the surrender, and then you go back to verse 5. Listen, look at it carefully. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now that, that's incredible. That this is not simply a text to remind us of all the good things Jesus did for us, but is a text to us to show Jesus Christ that we might emulate his life. This is the pattern this is the Christianity that we've been called to. This is the life that we've been called to live, a very contrary life to what we might have been taught about following Jesus. Have this mind, church. Have this mind, pastors. He says, have this mind in yourself that was yours in Christ Jesus, that this is the model of humility. I think about Romans chapter 8, which says, we have been predestined to be conformed into the image of God. Do you know what the word predestined means? It means a predetermined plan. What Romans 8 is saying is this. God has always had a predetermined plan. His predetermined plan is to take those who have been saved and make them look like Jesus. That's God's big, glorious plan. Slowly but surely conform you into the image of Jesus. Therefore, we see the image of Jesus revealed that he humbled himself. Let me just make sure we understand that humility is not simply a disposition of the heart. Humility is an act of the will. We decide to be humble. We decide to serve. We choose the path of service in the same way that Jesus Christ did. For those of you who are taking notes and uptight about note-taking, you are noticing that I said there were five, and you're afraid I'm about to close the sermon. But I want to conclude by giving you this fifth word, because I said this. I said, Jesus is our model of humility. That's all of that we just saw. But I also said, Jesus is our means of humility. And here's the good news, because it is only because of Jesus that we can be humble. So let me give you one last word, and that is salvation. Salvation. It is exactly what's being played out for us here. Why did Jesus do all of this? Well, for our salvation. This is what Jesus did so that we could be saved. You say, well, what do I need to do to be saved? One simple thing. Believe in what Jesus Christ already did. Trust in the finished work of Christ on your behalf. Everything that was done was done that you might be saved. And the only call upon your life is to simply trust that Jesus lived the life you could not live and believe that his death was sufficient for you and surrender yourself to him. That's the one work. Believe on Christ and you will be saved. Saved from your sin and saved from yourself. Now, why do I say that Jesus is our means of humility? Please listen. Please listen carefully right here. I've got very, very good news for you. 
the greatest hindrance to our own walk of humility is that in our hearts, we are desperate for approval, affirmation, and attention. Do you feel it? Like, I feel it. Like, we are desperate for it. We have this longing in our hearts to be affirmed. We want people to notice everything we do and say something about it. We are desperate for attention. We are desperate for approval. And if you say, well, no, that's not me, that's because at some point in your life, you hardened your heart to this and just have decided that you don't need it. But the reality is, is that you absolutely need those things. And the way I know you need those things is because God put in your heart this longing and desire for approval, affirmation, and attention. We are desperate for those things. But here's the way that it is possible for us to be humble. Listen, is when we come to the place in which we realize that all of the approval, affirmation, and attention we have ever needed and our heart longs for is given to us by Christ himself. I am approved fully by God. I have the attention of God the Father. I have the affirmation of God the Father when he says, you're mine and I love you and I'm proud of you. And listen, when we can get to the place where we're getting our affirmation and we're getting our attention and our approval from Jesus, then all of a sudden we're not so desperate to get it from each other. So if I can just get to the point where I don't always need you to affirm me and I don't always need your attention, then could it be that at that place I could start to serve you? Could it be husband? That if you did not constantly need the affirmation and attention and approval of your spouse, but rather walked in confidence in who you are in Jesus Christ, that you could serve her. Jesus is our means of humility in that Jesus is saying to every single one of his children this morning, listen, I already love you. You're already good. I've already approved of you. You are in right standing before me, so stop trying to get from others what you need to get from me and be willing to humble yourself and serve. And the goal of all of this in chapter 127 is that we would be together, listen, for the gospel. And so the question is really a personal one this morning. When we take the pattern that we started talking about, the one piece that you cut in which every other piece is going to look like, how are you conforming personally to the pattern? How are you embracing the humility of Jesus? How is it that you need to receive this morning the affirmation and attention and affection of Jesus that you might be freed up to serve others? Just imagine a church of people growing in that pattern of Christ-likeness so the world can see through us who Jesus actually is. May it be so this morning. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.